Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. That's what I want to do today. We're going to read tons and tons of scripture. We're going to go through Mark chapter 14 and, and 15. And I just want to read, we're just going to basically go through the story of the cross and resurrection. So we'll start with Thursday morning as they come into Jerusalem and get ready for the Passover. And we're just going to read, and of course, I'm, I can't read all of it. I wrote it down, a, a note of reminder to myself for next year, a possible message series idea. What I'd like to do is maybe take a couple of, or maybe a month or so, or a few weeks before Easter, and actually just work through chronologically the Gospels, all the events that happen in the week leading up to Jesus moving to Jerusalem, and then during the week when he's in Jerusalem. I think it'd be great. Um, but obviously, we don't have time in one message to go through all that. So I'm picking and choosing a bit, but basically, I just want to take us through the story of, uh, from the Last Supper and all the way into the, into the resurrection. And I think I can't imagine a better way to, to really celebrate uh, this. And I hope, I hope, by the way, that you guys have been... Um, uh, it's so easy as Christians, you know, the Easter eggs and stuff. I got no problem with Easter eggs. Our kids did an Easter egg hunt uh, Friday night. No problem with that. Got way too much chocolate. Um, we, we're hiding most of it so they don't actually get to eat it. Uh, fortunately, none of them is in the service. But there's nothing wrong with Easter egg hunts and eggs and that sort of thing. But I do hope it's so easy to just leave it to church. Oh, we'll talk about Easter at church, but we don't talk about uh, actually what this is about with our kids and in our marriages and thank Jesus. Actually make the whole weekend about him. And uh, last night, what we did with our kids is we, uh, we, went, we rented the Son of God movie, and we just sat down with them. We've got four little kids. Uh, the bottom two weren't really paying attention, but that's okay. They'll get it somehow. Um, but we just, we just watched it together, and then afterwards, we just said, thank, we just went around a circle, and we just, thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross for our sins and raising from the dead. And we sang a couple of songs, and it was just, it was so meaningful. And, and this morning at breakfast again, we were able to, to, to bring it up. And I do hope that you have traditions and that you start traditions uh, in your home and with your friends and, and with your kids and with, and with your wife and, and all this stuff is that Easter, this is the most important holiday of the year. I mean, Christmas is amazing. I mean, he couldn't have died if he didn't get born. But this is when we, this is when he died for us and then he rose from the grave. This is why we have hope. And so I would encourage you this afternoon, even as you go home to lunch and maybe you have gatherings, uh, why not intentionally turn the conversation to Easter and to Jesus and to the resurrection and what God's doing in your life today at lunch? Why not try it at least, right? And so that's what today, that's all I want to do now in this message. I'm just going to go through the story. And so let's pray and we'll get into it. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have triumphed over the grave. And I thank you that we all do have hope and I have hope and we have hope. And we have hope, first of all, for the future of a resurrection to come when there will be no more pain and crying and fear and sin and temptation. But Lord, so we thank you for that. And there's an actual day on the calendar coming and we're going to have that. And that's amazing. And it just makes it all worth it. We can hold on. We just have to hold on a bit longer. But even more than that, Lord, we already have hope today. Today we can have victories. And today we can experience you. And today we can have hope. And I pray that your love and your hope would just touch every person who's here this morning because today is Easter and we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and for raising from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Mark chapter 14, it's Thursday morning. And like I said, we have not nearly enough time to go through all the events from Thursday to Sunday, but, but I have picked and cho chosen, so we'll just kind of move through them. And on the first day of unleavened bread, they're in, they're in Bethany right now. They're actually just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And it's Thursday morning. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, 
Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there to prepare for us. And I just, I, I love this. Let's not glaze over uh, details here. I just love Jesus. He is fully 100% a man, but the Godness, he's also 100% God, and the Godness breaks out constantly throughout the, the Gospels. Yes, he's fully man, and, and he was born as a baby and all this stuff, but the Godness just breaks through in regular, ordinary, everyday occurrences. And so he sends them ahead. There's no cell phones or texting, okay? He just sends them ahead, and uh, by the way, and he just knows. He's, they're like pawns. They're a few miles away. It's going to be um, an hour, hour and a half walk to Jerusalem. And he says, when you get there, there'll be a man with a jar. Just follow him. And uh, he just knows. It's it just like little chess pieces. The God of the universe here is in flesh. He sees every event in the future. He can move people around. He says, right as you get to the gate, it'll be the perfect time. Don't worry about it. Um, just walk your normal pace and you'll get there just the right time. And uh, then you're just going to follow this guy to a room and then just tell him the master wants a room because I own everything. And so I want a room. Now, the thing you have to realize here is this is a kind of last-minute preparations. The population of Jerusalem would, would double, possibly even triple. Joseph, some of the ancient historians talk about massive influxes of people for the Passover. I mean, there, was, there would have been no rooms empty, okay? And this is Thursday. But Jesus just confidently, again, he's the God of the universe. It's all his. And it, somehow he prepares this guy. Did he come to him in a dream? Did he send his spirit night before and tell him, I want a room for tomorrow? Or did he just flick a switch in his brain and just say, say yes? Or, or what did he do? It's his room. It's his world. He sends him ahead. He says, you're going to meet a guy. Just follow him. Go there. Tell him. It's, this is his godness. Okay, this is God in the flesh. And the background here is, what makes the backdrop of this story even more stunning is the one who knows all things down to the detail of who's going to be at what gate, when, and where, and whose room am I going to use, and it's mine, and he knows all these things in the future, also knows that this very night he's going to be betrayed. And he's going to be dragged away, and he's going to be beaten and crucified the following day. Now, if you had that kind of all-knowingness, would you still go into Jerusalem? I doubt it. I wouldn't. So his all-knowingness, his omniscience at work in procuring a room for the Passover supper, but he won't use it to save himself from the cross. Stunning, stunning, this Jesus that we serve and worship. And so the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. You know, I just wish I could trust like that, don't you? Don't you wish you could trust Jesus like that? Did you know that your life is in his hands? He tells you, he sends you out in a storm. We were watching the Son of God movie last night, and the kids were like, didn't Jesus tell them to get in the boat? Yeah, and it's a wicked storm. I said, yeah, he knew that was coming. He sometimes just sends us out into a storm, right? And he tells them, just go ahead and you're going to find it. Okay, you go ahead and you just find it exactly. He just takes care of all the details. And found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And so we go to the next verse, and now we're skipping ahead to the, to the end of the day. It's Thursday evening now. And now they're going to sit down to actually have the Passover supper. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now I just want to stop there for just a moment. Sometimes it's nice to pay attention to some of these details, because it just makes the story come alive. 
And so we have usually a wrong picture. We usually have a Western picture of, of sitting down to supper together. Uh, one of the most famous pictures of the Last Supper is Leonardo da Vinci's. I, I put it up there for those of you who are uh, art buffs. And, um, and so we kind of have this idea of, you know, a table and the disciples and Jesus sitting around a table and, uh, and eating and all this sort of stuff. But this is not at all how they would have eaten. And, uh, and so it says that they, they were reclining at table and how they would have eaten in, in, in uh, Jewish times back then in Israel in the Middle East is they would have been lying down. And so I've got the next picture up there. Now, this is not the Last Supper. You'll, there's dancing and women and, and different things there, okay? But I, 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 couldn't get a, I, I couldn't get a picture of the disciples reclining. I looked at Google. Like, there should be something out there, but this is the, the best I could do. Um, anyway, you'll, you'll notice, though, that they're, they're lying down, and, and uh, most of them, now not all of them, but in what they would have been doing there, Jesus and the disciples, is they would have been lying kind of on their stomachs, a little bit on their side, on their left side, and then using their, their right hand to eat, okay? And you have to always think about this. Throughout the Gospels, when you're reading about the, the stories of the Gospels when they're eating, this is how they were eating. Otherwise, none of the stories make sense. For example, just before Passover, there's that story in the Gospels where Jesus is there and this woman comes and she breaks, you know, that, that expensive a jar of perfume on his feet, and she's crying over his feet and wiping the tears with her, with her hair. That story makes no sense. I, I always, I tend to do this too. Well, I always imagine him at a table, sitting at his chair, and what is she under the table, right? It doesn't work. It makes sense when you realize his feet are out behind him, and she comes and she anoints his feet with oil, right? So this is how they're, they're uh, uh, sitting. And then also, we, kinda, we know some of the order of how they would have been sitting, and I can't show you all the, the verses, but there's a bunch of verses of how they were sitting, which just, again, makes the story come alive. Um, but if you go to the next slide there, uh, Darlene, thank you. Uh, we know where Jesus, Judas, John, Peter would have been sitting. We don't know the rest of the disciples. And, and again, I can't show you all the verses how we know this, but it makes some of the story just make a lot more sense. Um, but Jesus would have been in the place, uh, sec from the, second from the, the bottom there is where the kind of the master of ceremonies or the host would, would, would lie, I was going to say sit, but would recline. Uh, to eat. To his right would be his uh, assistant, okay? And to his left would be the most uh, important guest, okay? The most honored guest would always sit uh, immediately to the host's left, okay? The, the chief uh, host. And we also know from a few things that Peter uh, was on the far side, and that'll make a little more sense as we go through the story. But the thing you have to remember is that in Jewish culture, order mattered, Okay, like we sit down at tables, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we have little kids, so we always have to sit by our little kids so we can help them eat. Um, but other than that, for the most part, when we sit down at a table here in the West, it doesn't matter where you sit. Okay, you just sit here, you sit there, you sit there. Uh, in Jewish culture, it mattered. You, there was an order to how you sat. Okay, and so again, starting with the host and then moving to his left and all the way around, each position gets less and less and less honored until you get to the place where Peter is. That's actually the place of least honor. Uh, it's usually the place where the youngest person would, would, uh, would recline or, or perhaps a servant or something like that. And so order mattered. And in fact, order mattered so much to them that the disciples, right at the beginning of this Passover feast, actually fought over where they'd sit. Like, think about this. This is the Last Supper. Like, this is their last time eating together with Jesus. He's about to die. Like, you'd think... Show some positive signs, guys. He's about to go home, okay? Um, you're about to be it for the church. And they're fighting. We find this in Luke 24's account over, of the Last Supper. Luke 24, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them 
as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And so right here, the, la the last, I mean, it, it encourages me actually. Before we laugh at them too hard, right? Before we laugh at them too hard and think, oh, those pathetic disciples. Right? Isn't that how we, we read these stories kind of condescendingly? Oh, those disciples, they just didn't get it. Imagine this. Let me give you a scenario and let's see if you feel how you feel. Imagine you're at work and you accidentally find out the salaries of everybody you work with, okay? And you find out that a bunch of the people who have been there less time than you who work lower jobs than you or who work the same job as you make a lot more money than you do, okay? How would you feel? <laughs> terrific or horrific? We have one here who can truthfully say terrific and the rest of us would be horrific. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, isn't that true? You might have been perfectly happy with your salary before and somebody might say, no, I feel good about it. I'd like to actually see if you would feel good about it because it's about respect, right? It's about respect. How can they? They've been here less. They do the same job as me. You were happy with your salary before, but the moment you find out that they're making more than you, it's about respect. They don't respect me. Isn't that true? The fact of the matter is we have the same, we have the same issues. We're human just like they were. So they fought over it. Because they're sitting there because the entire dinner, it's going to be about who's the most important. So they fought over it. Of course, Jesus rebukes them. And he said to them, Kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So it's interesting to me where they actually end up sitting. Uh, Judas, no doubt, uh, you know, will have fought to get himself still the place of most honor. And John, who is most likely the youngest of the disciples by far, ends up opposite of where he should be, according to Jewish things. And Peter ends up at the bottom. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how they ended up where, but I have kind of a feeling that it wasn't just because Peter was so full of humility. Um, you know, Peter was, uh, I just, I love Peter's personality. He's so impetuous. He's, he's, he's bullheaded, but he wants to do right. I have a feeling, you know, he was probably right in the scrum of fighting for the most important spot. And when Jesus said, the lead, the, you know, the greatest has to be the least, oh, then that's it. I'm going right to the bottom. Just put me at the bottom. Okay, that's where I'm going. I'm going there, okay? He, he has good intentions, all right? And so we all have the same problems. And so we carry on with the story. And as they were reclining at table back in Mark 14 here and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? Now, now these guys are a bit freaked out. Think about this. Everything Jesus says comes true. I mean, he just told them earlier that morning, go into town, there's going to be a guy there right at the right time, just follow him, and you're going to tell him he's going to have a room, and this is the kind of stuff they have lived with for three years. When he says something, it happens. Now he says, one of you is going to betray me, and they're all going, huh? is it me? Is it me? Is it you? Who? And because he's always right. He's never wrong. And so they're worried, and so if we jump back over to the, I'm just going to jump to the Gospel of John for just a second here. John 13 has a bit more detail here. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so that's John there, right beside him, okay? So Simon Peter motioned to him. So Simon Peter's across the way there, and he motions to him, because they're all, who's it going to be, right? And so he motions, ask him. Ask him. Who's it going to be? Come on, ask him, Okay? That's Jesus who he was speaking about. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus, because remember, so they're on there using your right hand to, to eat. You're reclining there. He kind of leans back into Jesus, into Jesus' chest, and he says, 
says to him, Lord, who is it? So Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. Now, uh, Jewish tradition was that these uh, important suppers is um, the, the host or the master of ceremonies or whatever, like Jesus is, is kind of the, the central figure here, would, uh, to start the dinner, would dip uh, bread, a piece of bread into a sauce or whatever, uh, some of the best food that's at the table, and he would give it, the first bite of the meal would go to the most honored guest who is at his left. Okay? So this is already a Jewish tradition. So John leans over and he's like, who's it going to be? And Jesus says, it's the one to whom I'm going to give the dip bread. It's the, most, it's the one who's in a place of most honor. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, who's immediately to his left, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, so it's, again, it's just so interesting to me, how often, in, even in the church, we're, isn't it true that as human beings, we're constantly fighting for position? We're constantly fighting to be noticed. We're constantly fighting, let me be the one there. Let me be the one who gets the recognition. Let me get, be the one who gets the thanks. Let me get the one who gets to be called to do this or that or be this or be that. And this, the stunning thing is here, Judas has fought to get himself in that place. He's the most honored guest. He's got the highest place of honor at the table with Jesus. And he's the one who is, he's the only one that's not going to be in heaven. Of all the disciples, Jesus said, uh, woe to the one who betrays me. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And so we fight, we fight for that in the church too. We fight for recognition. We fight for status. We fight to be noticed. We fight for all those things. All things that don't matter, ultimately. And so Jesus reaches over and he fulfills the Jewish tradition. He gives the first bite to the most honored guest. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. What an awful thought. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And so we go back to Mark 14, we carry on with the supper. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And, and again, I don't want us to glaze over these details, because we do this all the time at communion. And we just did communion again um, uh, on Friday at the prayer summit. Sometimes, by the way, sometimes people ask us here at Southland, uh, why don't you guys do communion? And, and we actually do communion every single month here at this church. We do it at our prayer summits, and it's wonderful. Um, but anyway, and so, but we kind of glaze over these verses because we read them every month at the prayer summit for communion, and we don't think about what's happening here at this supper. Jesus is acting out his death, and I, and I wonder, I, I, I try to put myself a little bit in Jesus' shoes, and I wonder at what he must be feeling inside right now at what he's about to go through. Like, I, I think of what I sometimes feel before, like, you know when you're nervous, you have to go up and do something, or you, you, something important, or there's pressure on you for something, and you, there's that feeling, a little bit of fear, or, I mean, Sean shared on the video today, you know, before he goes into that awful surgery, where he talks about them, you know, taking out a football-sized chunk of his body, and you just think, like, what must that have felt like, you know, in the day leading up to that surgery, in the two days leading up to that surgery, that must have been awful. I can't imagine the anxiety, the fear, the dread, okay? I can't imagine what, what is going through Jesus. These, and his disciples, he's all alone here in terms of his disciples don't get it at all. And he knows they're all going to scatter. So they're sitting with him. They're having a, they're, this is a celebration. It's Passover. And he is acting out. He's saying, this is my body. He's breaking this bread. He knows tonight and tomorrow my body is going to be broken in a horrific way. Well, I wonder what he's feeling right now on the inside. 
that agony of dread at what is about to happen. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, and yet he's able to give thanks, that just blows me away. He gave it to them, and they all drank it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And again, this is all going over the disciples' heads, and so we skip a little bit ahead there, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And the grace here, you will all fall away. He knows it. The shepherd's about to take one on the chin, and he knows that the sheep are all going to scatter. But he's not mad at them. He's not condemning them. He's not kicking them. He's not saying, get away from me. What does he, what does he say? I just The grace here is unbelievable. He says, after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. He's already looking past that to when he's going to gather them all again. You know, sometimes we go through that in life too, right? We get scattered and we feel horrible. Oh, I, I can't believe that. I can't believe I failed you again, Jesus. I can't believe I didn't make it through that. I can't believe I quit. I can't believe I didn't live up to what I was hoping to live up to. And Jesus looks past it. He says, I know you're sheep. I know you fall away sometimes. I know you're unfaithful sometimes. But after I'm raised up, I'm going to meet you in Galilee again. I'm, he's already looking ahead to gathering them together. The shepherd's going to take one for the sheep. It's the shepherd who's strong, not the sheep. Of course, as human beings, we don't like the feeling of being weak, of not being in control, not being able to trust ourselves. And our natural tendency is to try to be strong. Often, I think much of our faith in God is actually faith in ourselves. I'm going to do this for you, God. I'm going to be strong for you, God. I'm going to do, 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 do. These are all the things that I'm going to do to stay strong for God. And our trust sometimes is actually in ourselves rather than in God. Certainly it's true of Peter. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. What a great resolution, right? Like, I love it. Jesus loves it. I love your heart in this, Peter. I love that you don't want to fall away. I love that your desire is I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. But the problem is it's coming out of a place of self-confidence rather than humble dependency on the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says to him, you know, Peter, Peter, right? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, for the rooster crows t twice, you will deny me three times. Okay? Of course, Peter's really headstrong and determined he said emphatically, okay, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. By the way, it's not that Peter was a coward. When the, when the uh, soldiers and the religious leaders come to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter yanks out a sword and cuts off a guy's ear. He's, he's, res he's ready to go down fighting. He, he did have courage, and he wanted to fight for Jesus. There's no question. But when Jesus let them take him away, Something happened in Peter. He did something. Peter hadn't expected him to act that way. Peter could be courageous as long as God was doing what Peter thought he should do. You ever been there? As long as God's doing it the way you think he's supposed to do it, then you can walk that path and feel pretty confident. You know what's coming. You know how it should act. This is how God's going to answer this prayer. This is what God's doing. But the moment Jesus says, actually, Peter, that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually going to die. The moment he goes off the path of what Peter is expecting, 
Peter loses all this confidence. And he does exactly what Jesus said. I mean, he had courage so long as God did what he expected. But the moment it got into dark territory and things got black, and I don't know what God's doing here, he was a sheep and he scattered. And he did deny Jesus three times. And so though their intentions were good, and by the way, I want you to notice that they all said the same. It wasn't just Peter. We always pick on Peter. And I just noticed this week as I was meditating on this, they all said the same. So they were all in the same boat. It wasn't just Peter. They were all saying that they were going to go all the way with Jesus. But then he confused them, and they all scattered. See, their confidence, again, like I said before, their confidence, they had good intentions, but their confidence was in themselves. And you know, all of us start there. There's, all of us have to start there. You give your life to Jesus, you fall in love with him, and now I'm going to do ministry for him. And we get excited, and we're going to use our gifts. Jesus has given us these gifts, and he's given us these abilities, and he's given us these opportunities. So now we're going to just, we're going to serve Jesus. And we go out and we're excited, and there's nothing wrong with that. The disciples have done amazing ministry for three years with Jesus. But here's the thing. When you're walking with Jesus, a time's going to come when he's going to say, I need to take you to another level. It's fine. Don't worry. It's not like you have to look for this. Okay? But you're serving Jesus all out. You're enthusiastic. You're using your gifts and abilities. And then Jesus says, actually, I want to take you to the next level where you totally depend on me, where I can actually really trust you, where, I, where you can be fruitful at a deep level that is unbelievable. But in order for you to get there, he has to strip away your confidence in the flesh. He has to take you to a place where he shows you that you're not everything you think you are. He has to take you to a place where he shows you, because you've been going on resolutions, this is what I'm going to do for God, and look what I've done for God, and, and you would never say these things out loud, but inside you feel like all these things you've done for God, and they're so important, and God almost needs you, and you're just going to be strong for him no matter what, and you're a little bit judgmental of Christians who aren't like that, and who kind of fall by the wayside, and you think, well, I'm just strong. And God says, oh, I love the intentions. But he says, now I've got to take you on a wilderness, and I've got to show you that actually you're super weak, and I've got to shatter your self-confidence to the place where he takes Peter, and one night he's going to take him to a place where Peter just wants to quit ministry, and he thinks he's useless to God. He's going to take Peter to a place, not just where Peter's a little bit sorry, he's going to take Peter to a place where he has to actually restore Peter to ministry because Peter says, I'm going fishing, I'm useless to Jesus. He goes from, I'll die for you, in 12 hours to I can't be used by Jesus ever again. And it's when he gets there that Jesus says, oh, oh, oh. now we're going to build a church and we're going to do the book of Acts. And you're going to be used. But you're not going to be used because you think you're so great anymore. You're going to be used out of a place of deep humility and absolute utter dependency on the Holy Spirit day by day. And it's in, the, it's in the fires of that shattering where God takes you in his place where he strips away all of your confidence in your flesh, which is just incredibly painful and uncomfortable, but it's in the fires of that shattering where he forges humility and perseverance and submission and obedience and all these precious things that you can't get just by exercising your gifts and being enthusiastic for God. And so their intentions are good. Their confidence is in the wrong place. He says, I'm going to strip you down a little bit, but I'm going to come and I'm going to meet you in Galilee on the other side, and then we're going to go and we're going to really do some stuff. So we keep going with the story. Skip ahead through the Garden of Gethsemane and all that, and 
the arrest, and now he's standing before the high priest. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. I just love that none. You got the most powerful people in Jerusalem, tons of, you know, limitless resources, essentially, and they are highly motivated to find one thing wrong with Jesus. Something embarrassing, something humiliating, something they can use against him, something wrong, a mistake, something he said. And these are not just put, I mean, they got all the resources of Jerusalem there. They got all their little agents out there looking around. They're trying to drum something up, and they can't find a single thing wrong. I love the holy perfection of Jesus. He never did anything wrong. Can you imagine if the Winnipeg Free Press, you imagine if they took all the reporters, got them in a room, pulled your name out of a hat and said, your full-time job now to all the reporters is to find just even one piece of dirt on this person, on one of you guys, or me. And they got to find one piece of dirt on this person that we can humiliate them with and get them in trouble with. Do you think they'd be able to find something? I'm pretty sure. You say, oh, I don't think they could find anything. So they start talking to your old high school friends. Oh, yeah, forgot about that. And your old high school enemies. And your ex-business partner. And your family. And your second cousins. And they, just, and they start looking at your internet records. And all of a sudden, some of you are going, <gasps> They'll find something. There isn't one of us here that if, they, that if people dug hard enough, they would find something that they could use against us. Because we've all done wrong. We've all done embarrassing things. We've all taken advantage of people. We've all hurt people. We've all done bad things. You could dig up dirt on any one of us. Jesus. Tens of thousands. He's been on the earth for 33 years by this point. Thousands of interactions with people. He's been tired. He's been hungry. He's been angry. He's been frustrated. He's been overworked. He's been in storms. He's been lied about. He's been taken advantage of. He's been everything. Thousands of interactions with human beings. He's never done a single thing wrong. Not even once. He's absolutely perfect and spotless. I love that about him. I love it so much. In John chapter 8, he actually throws out a challenge to the religious leaders in another setting. He says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? I, I can just, can you imagine having the audacity to say that? If I could get up on stage here and say, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And like I said, right away, I know there's about a dozen of you here today who went to the SRSS with me back in the mid-90s. And I have to say, sit down, please. <laughs> Zip it. My family could come up here. The dog could come up here and say, hey, what about on Monday when you... And what... Uh, Jesus can stand up there and say, which of you right now? One thing. One thing. In any interaction with anyone, one thing that I've ever done wrong. Zero. He's perfect. <gasps> Why wouldn't we want to spend time with him? I want his spirit to fill me. I can hardly wait till the day when he gives me a resurrected body and I get his nature inside of me and I get to be perfect. It's going to be awesome. And so they have to resort to lying. So many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. He's so, he's so spotless, they can't even make lies stick. I mean, this squeaky clean. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. You know, if there's one thing, I mean, you look at all this, and then he just stands there and he just takes it. He doesn't lower himself to their level. And I just think, he suffered well. When I suffer, one of the things the Lord's been convicting me, when I suffer, I'm thrashing, complaining, whining. Life is horrible. This is not what we do. Bringing other people down with us. Like drowning people, just whatever. Jesus comes into his place of suffering. They're lying like crazy about him, attacking him, threatening him, trying to intimidate him. And he suffers well. It's like just a lamb. Just, just utter trust in the Father and who he is. I think that word right there should convict a whole bunch of us. We're having problems with people. People are accusing us, attacking us. Things are happening at work. Things are happening in our family. Wow, we're beaking off all over the place. We're trying to defend ourselves. Jesus, a rock. He's our defender. Silent. Stood before them. Suffered well. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And now we're going to read into Mark 15 here, the crucifixion. I'm just going to read through it. Obviously skipping some of the details here. We just don't have time. But this is now the next day in the morning. He's gone through a night of beatings and attacks. And uh, verse 16 in Mark 15, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. I mean, that would have been intimidating right there. I just, I can't imagine just the intimidation, the fear factor. And he suffers well through all of it. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And it was the third hour, that's about 9 a.m. when they crucified him. This is Friday morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by, and think of the loneliness. I mean, it's one thing to suffer, but it's at least, you know, most of us, we suffer, we have good, some good people around us who encourage us, who empathize with us, who listen to us. That's what gets us through a lot of our suffering. He's suffering, and they're all yelling and mocking him. And the loneliness. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, I mean, did it ever cross his mind? You know, and I know not, because he's the Son of God and he loves us and he knows all things, but I, I can only imagine being up on the cross thinking, what am I dying for these people for? It's his creation, his piddly little creatures. And they've nailed them to a cross, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests of the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, it's about noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land 
until the ninth hour. So it was darkness for three hours in the middle of the afternoon. That must have been a little scary. And at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly alone in his suffering now. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, I mean, this is a hardened man. This, this centurion is a man who has crucified many people before. He has seen brutal suffering. And he has been involved in this brutality and is hardened to these things. But when he sees all of this, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And I mean, if the story ended there, it would be the most incredible story of love the world has ever seen. I mean, if we just ended the story here, it would already be an unbelievable story. It would be an inspirational story, like some of the biographies you read where people do incredible things to read about a man who could die like that and love like that. It would be stunning. It would be an incredible story. The only problem is it wouldn't have any power for us today because he'd still be dead. It would be inspirational. It would be stunning. It would be incredible. How could someone love like that? How could someone die like that? The things we see in him, the courage, the love, the steadfastness. I mean, even as he's pulling his cross up the road to Golgotha, the women are crying. He's not thinking of his own pain. He turns and says to them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And he makes a prophecy about the downfall of Jerusalem. He cares about them. I mean, it's just stunning. I mean, if the story ended here, it's stunning. Oh, it's already amazing, but it wouldn't have any power for us today because he'd still be dead. It would be an inspirational story. It would be nothing more, something to try to live up to, but none of us would ever make it. But it isn't the end of the story, and it's what happens next that makes this story 3D. It goes from being inspirational, incredible, look at this love, to being something that's actually reality that actually changes our life today because... On the third day, Friday, he goes into the grave. Two days later, according to how we would call it, 48 hours or whatever, two days later, on the third day, he rises from the, from the grave. And we pick up the story again. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there was a lot of Marys in those days, went to see the tomb. And these weren't the only two. There was other Marys too. I wonder if there's a lot of confusion there in Jesus' followers about that, but anyway. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, and again, these are hardened, these are hardened, hardened men. Used to brutality, used to violence, and uh, this angel has them trembling, and they become like dead men. In other words, they fainted. And I wish, I wish I could have seen this. I wish I could have seen those savage-hardened shoulders, soldiers shaking in their boots and fainting, the powerful earthquake, the lightning. So here these guys are lying, and the angel said to the women, but here's the women, they're not fainted. So they come, and these soldiers are all laid out on the ground. And... Uh, do not be, and the angel says to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. In other words, do not be afraid because I know you're on a good team. In other words, if you weren't on the right side, you have something to be scared of. These soldiers actually have something to be scared of, but you have nothing to be afraid of. You're on the right side. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. 
as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. I hope we never get tired of this story. We get so familiar with it. I think it's easy to fall into that trap sometimes of we just get familiar with it. It just is just that. But I I think the only way we can actually really get tired of this story, gets old to us, is if we're not experiencing his power in our life today. I hope that this is more than a story. I hope that this past year you have experienced some of Jesus' power in your life. But in the first part of this story, we see Jesus' awesome love for us. In the second part of this story, we see Jesus' awesome power because he actually reverses death. He actually overcomes death itself. He dies. His heart stops pumping. His brain stops working. His body goes stiff and hard. And on the third day after that, he's completely 100% dead. He raises himself from the grave. I mean, that is, that is stunning, awesome power. It means that he has power over all physical nature to be able to overcome death itself, to be able to die and then raise yourself from the dead shows utter sovereignty and power over everything in nature. It shows that he is sovereign over cancer, over diabetes, over heart disease, over MS. You, you name it, Jesus is sovereign over everything in the physical world. He just, he overcame death. And you say, well, okay, good for him. I mean, I read the Bible, I totally get that in my head. Uh, you know, Jesus overcame death, it's great. You know, he's, he's good for that. I don't know why that should give us hope, but the crazy thing about the resurrection is that because he rose, we can be confident that we will rise. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. So when Jesus died on the cross, and then when he rose from the dead, he didn't just rise from the dead like, oh, cool, we give him applause, neat trick. You can raise yourself from the dead, that's awesome. And it wasn't what the resurrection was. The resurrection was a first taste of something bigger. See, first fruits in the Old Testament was the farmers, you plant your crop, you watch it growing, okay? And of course, Every plant in your field doesn't grow at the same rate and give you fruit at exactly the same time. You know, you, you got days of difference there. The moment the first little bit of crop in your fields would come in, you would immediately harvest it and you would go and you would sacrifice it to God because what you were doing is you were showing your faith in Him that He was going to bring in the rest of the crop and take care of you. That was first fruits. You bring the first to Him before the rest of it comes in, you give it to Him. And then you trust that he's going to bring in the rest. Well, Paul turns around here and he says, Jesus' resurrection was first fruits. It wasn't a one-time thing. Jesus gets raised from the dead. He overcomes sickness. He overcomes the physical world. Yada, 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 yada. Good for him. That's not what it was. He was first fruits. He was the first of a whole bigger harvest that God is planning to come in, to, to bring in. And because he was raised from the dead, we can now trust God that he will bring the rest of us from the dead because he was just the first taste of what's going to happen to the rest of us. Amen. And so Paul says this in verse 21. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ. So we all get death. We're all in Adam right now. We all get born into a life and we all will die. I mean, uh, Jesus will, I'm hoping he's coming back soon. I believe he's maybe coming back in my lifetime. I'm really hoping for it. But even at that, I'm dying now. How many of you know that we're all dying right now? I mean, we all have bad days. We all get older and older. And we have sick and we have all that. So we all know about death. We all know loved ones who have died. We're born, that we're just born into the Adam thing. We're all experiencing death our entire lives. But in Christ, he says, there's a totally different thing. All shall be made alive. It's a completely opposite reverse thing. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, he has to go first. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, I can hardly wait. That is very good news. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So because of the resurrection, we can know that one day we will be resurrected. And we can, even in the midst of not being yet resurrected, know that Jesus is sovereign over every physical sickness, illness, and disease that any of us struggle with today. And that people we love with love struggle with today. Even if he doesn't heal it right now, all of us will ultimately be healed. And even some he does heal already now because he's sovereign over it all. We know that because of the resurrection. But you know what? It even goes beyond that. It even goes beyond that. It's not just the physical side of things. That's great. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the day when I will not have to ever worry about having a kidney stone. I've never had one, but it's just a fear that's followed me all my life something I really don't want to have happen to me. <laughs> so I'm excited about the resurrection. There's a day coming when that's not going to happen to people anymore. Hallelujah. But it goes beyond that too. It goes beyond that. See, in the Bible, death and physical sickness are not just a thing unto themselves. It's connected to sin. Death and sickness come because of sin. Sin and death are intertwined. The physical and spiritual are intertwined. We see this throughout the New Testament. I'll just show you a couple of verses, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Death isn't just a thing on its own. It's because of sin. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is a result of sin. Sin causes death. And this makes the resurrection have even more meaning because when Jesus showed his power over death, death is just the physical manifestation of sin. Death is the physical, and, and by that I do not mean, don't, if you're new here, I'm not saying that if you're sick, it's because you sinned. I'm just saying that all the death and sickness in the world is the physical manifestation of sin. If there had never been sin, there would be no death and sickness. Amen. Okay? So when Jesus exercised his physical sovereignty over physical death and sickness, what he was really showing was something much deeper that he was, has actually overcome and is sovereign over the root of death itself, which is sin, which means the resurrection shows Jesus does not just have power to help you manage your sin, to kind of push away your sin, to, cut, to even just forgive your sin. Yes, he forgives our sin. Thank you, Jesus, you forgive our sin. But when he rose from the grave, he showed his utter power over sin itself that one day he's going to rid us of sin and temptation completely. Hallelujah. And so at the resurrection, we're going to be given bodies, not just that we will never have 
disease or sickness or old age anymore. But at the resurrection, Jesus actually showed his power. The fact that he can reverse death itself in the very cells of your body means he can touch the deepest parts of your brain. It means he's victorious and powerful over depression, over sexual addiction, over obsessive lustful thoughts, over eating disorder, over unwanted same-sex attraction, over all kinds of things, broken marriage relationships. When he rose from the grave, he showed that he's powerful. There's things, I know for a lot of you, you have things in your head. How could God ever fix that in me? It's just been with you so long. You've struggled with that fear, with that thought, with that temptation for so long. You don't even know how God could get it out of you. But when he raised himself from the dead, he shows that he has power over it all. Over it all. Which means that there's a day coming when, when, at the resurrection when you will no longer, and you, you, some of you, you've had certain things with you and temptations of 20, 30 years. You, you just can't imagine life without it. A day is coming when you won't even be able to be tempted. You won't even be able to think that thought. Wow. You just have to hang on a bit longer. You just have to hang on a bit longer. He hasn't taken you home yet. He's not mad at you. You just have to hang on a bit longer. There's a day on a calendar. It's actually an actual day coming. And he will have utter and total dominion over sin and death, and we won't struggle with any of them anymore. But the cool thing is, even before that day, and it's an actual day coming, he's got a calendar in heaven. And I don't know what the date is. But an actual day, when we will be resurrected and these things will all be in our past, it just makes persevering a lot easier when you realize that. But even beyond that, we can already begin to experience victories now. As long as we're in this body, there will be temptations, yes. But we can already begin to have victory upon victory upon victory now because the same power that, rose him, that raised him from the dead is now in us by his Holy Spirit. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, think about that. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit, the same power dwells in you. Can you, do, do you know that? He lives in you. This is not just a fairy tale. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now that's something to get excited about. That's something to get excited about. So here's how we're going to end this message. And the choir is then going to, we're going to do a special, we're going to worship Jesus. But I want you to take out, and if, you, if you like to write stuff on your phones, do it on your phone. If you like to write stuff on old-fashioned paper, do an old-fashioned paper. But I want everybody to pull out a pen and a paper, a cell phone, whatever. Tear a strip off the shirt of the person beside you. <laughs> as long as it's not too nice a shirt. But get something that you can write with. This Easter, I want you to write down one thing. I want you to write down the biggest struggle you have in your life right now. Just pick one. If you have two that they're tied, find you two. It's a broken marriage you don't have any hope for. It's an eating disorder. It's fear. Something persistent. It's a physical thing, perhaps, a health thing. It's just the biggest struggle you have in your life right now. The one you, you can't even imagine. I can't imagine not having this anymore. I want you just to write it down on a piece of paper. 
Or if you're embarrassed about it, maybe just put like a little initial and you know what it is. Is it a sin issue? Lustful thoughts, health problem, broken marriage? Once you got that written down, I want you just to bow your heads. The choir's going to start coming up here because they're going to sing in just a moment, but I want you just to close your eyes. Once you write down, I just want you to close your eyes. Persistent thoughts you can't get rid of, things you worry about, things you can't seem to handle, something with a child. It's written down now. I want, you, I want you to close your eyes now. Just close your eyes. Take a deep breath. I want you to picture Jesus as, I mean, obviously we don't know exactly what he looked like, but just picture him, however you want to picture him. Resurrected, standing outside the tomb. You know, Mary and the, and the ladies, they come and they see him and they're overwhelmed with fear and joy and they just grab his feet and hang on. I want you to picture Jesus. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to now picture yourself giving him that big struggle. Because it's Easter. This is why he died and rose again. He rose because he's bigger than that struggle. I don't care which struggle you just wrote down. He's bigger than that struggle. He's more powerful than that struggle. I want you to write it down. You've done that already. Close your eyes. Now I want you to picture yourself giving it to Jesus. And I want you to just say to him inside in your heart. Jesus, I give this struggle to you. Jesus, I trust you with this struggle. Someday, for sure, he's going to take it away. For sure, for sure. But maybe he even wants to touch it today. But whatever the case is, he's bigger than it, he's sovereign over it, and he can take you through it. And he's risen, and that same spirit that raised him from the dead is in you, is going to get you through this thing, and maybe today he wants to take it off you. So I want you to picture yourself giving that struggle, whatever it is. I want you to lie at his feet and say, I give you this now, Jesus, resurrected Lord, and I trust that you are bigger than this, and that you are above this, and that you are Lord of this. Now I just want to pray for you. Lord Jesus, many deep struggles and issues have been written down here this morning. Some of them feel impossible. How could you ever cure this? But you raised yourself from the dead, which I guess just means you can do anything. Which means that as God of the universe, all of these struggles piled together in the middle of this room right now, the biggest struggles we possibly have are piddly nothingness in your hands and you're sovereign over them all. And I pray that there's a whole bunch of people here today that even as we sing this next song that you're actually going to take those things away right now. Some people are actually just going to get healed right here today. But other people, even if they're not healed right now here today, you have the power. You're over it nonetheless. You're going to heal it someday. But you're, you, the same spirit that raised you from the dead is in us right now. You're going to take us through it too. So I thank you for dying for our sins and I thank you for rising from the dead. And I thank you that your power is available to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.